All right, welcome back, everybody. Thank you for being here this morning. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Esther. Esther is a book of the Old Testament. It is located after Nehemiah. Chronologically, the book of Esther takes place in about uh, 480 or so B.C. That's about 480 years before the birth of Christ. And we're going to spend the next uh, 8 to 10 weeks talking about the book of Esther. Uh, And so I invite you to turn there this morning. Esther is an interesting book. It's a very interesting book. It's only one of uh, two books of the Bible that is named after a woman. You remember the other book of the Bible named after a woman? Yeah, the book of Ruth. That's right. It is the only book of the Bible that never mentions God in any way. Uh, There's one other book that is second uh, in chapter 8, verse 6, I believe, in the book of Song of Solomon. Uh, It has a a vague reference to God, and it's the only time in that book that the name of God is mentioned. Esther is one of these books that never mentions the name of God. It simply lacks all things spiritual. You can read every word of the book of Esther, and you won't find any mention of prayer. You won't find any mention of God. You won't find any mention of the Lord. You won't find any mention of spiritual things. There is no prophet. There is no one saying, thus says the Lord. There is nothing like that at all in the book of Esther. A few years ago, we took a trip to Washington, D.C. And have you ever been to Washington, D.C. and looked at the monuments? Just raise your hand. Sure, a lot of people have. And and as you walk through, you can see um, monuments and plaques of a certain age. And they may say something about God or something about Scripture or something about uh, something about our history, our spiritual heritage. Uh, increasingly more monuments and things are removing those, uh, those notes about our spiritual heritage. And thus we see in the book of Esther something like that. It's almost entirely politically correct or almost entirely secular. We're not sure who the author of the book of Esther is, but we do know it's an incredible story. Uh, I've encouraged everybody to read and reread the book of Esther over this next few weeks. And as you read it, you can see that it really reads like a a New York Times bestseller. Uh, It has uh, a villain, right? Haman is this villain who is trying to bring about a holocaust of the Jews. He's trying to exterminate all of the Jewish people in the kingdom of Persia. And if you're wondering how big the kingdom of Persia was, it's, it says in that first chapter that it's from India all the way to Ethiopia. So it's just that small area known as the Middle East, right? Basically, all of the Middle East, he's trying to kill all of the Jews in that area. Three other main characters in the book, King Ahasuerus, Right? King Ahasuerus, also known as Xerxes, the son of Darius, he is about to uh, go on this worldwide campaign, and he is the king at this time. We also have two other main characters, Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai and Esther. Mordecai and Esther sort of uncover this plot to exterminate all the Jews, and God uses them incredibly. He uses them incredibly in this message. Even though there, uh, there isn't the mention of God's name here, and even though we don't see a lot of spiritual language, you can't read this book without understanding that God is everywhere. 
working to accomplish his purposes. And what I want us to see in chapter 2 this week, what I want us to see in chapter 2 of Esther, is that God delights in choosing weak and broken and imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. How many of you are aware of a sense of brokenness? Anybody? Feel vulnerable? You feel weak at times? You feel powerless? You feel out of control? You feel like you can't get it together? You feel like there's a wound maybe in your life? Something terrible that's happened to you that has uh, that is always with you? It's pervasive and it gives you a sense of dependence on God. It gives you a sense of I need Him. I can't do this without Him. That sense of brokenness I want you to see that clearly in Esther and Mordecai. I want you to see that God chooses and uses weak and broken and imperfect people to accomplish His purposes. So by the end of our time together this morning, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be encouraged that if you feel broken today, I want you to be encouraged that God delights in you. Your brokenness does not disqualify you from being used in the kingdom of God. It actually, God uses your brokenness your imperfections, your wounds to accomplish His purpose. It doesn't disqualify you at all. And some of you, that's great news. You feel like nobody values you. You feel like your past has hindered you. You feel like your struggles are insurmountable, that God can't overcome you to use you and to give you a purpose and a reason and a meaning for existence. The truth is that God uses broken people. He uses imperfect people. He uses people that are broken. As long as there is breath in your lungs, sincere repentance, forgiveness, all that can be received at any moment. And so let's read our chapter together. And I want you to take special note of anything that would hint toward brokenness. Esther chapter 2 says, After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done And what had been decreed against her. Now just pause here for a second. Because those three words after these things, it's kind of loaded, right? We remember chapter 1 from last week. um, King Vashti, after a seven-day sort of drunken festival, King Xerxes and all the men in his feast requested the beautiful King Vashti to come and just present her beauty before them. Right? This is probably a rated R scene, and so there's kids in the room. We don't need to talk about all this. But, but in chapter 1, bad things are happening, and Vashti refuses to be a part of it. And so there is a, a, this sort of movement to find a new queen that will uh, happen here in just a moment. But after these things, let's you think that, that just happened. But it's really uh, 483 Three years into King Xerxes' reign is, is when Vashti uh, frustrated him. Uh, 483 is when that happened. We're going to find out that in verse 16 of chapter 2 that this is seven years later. Seven years into his kingdom. So four years have passed. And history tells us that Xerxes and his army in that three-year gap, chapter 2, verse 1, after these things, the these things, Xerxes tried to invade Greece. Okay? He mustered his army and they traveled across Persia and they tried to build these boats, if you know your history, these long boats that would form a bridge 
over the water to Greece, but the bridge didn't, the, the water, the weather didn't cooperate with King Xerxes. And like a madman, he had his troops out there. Have you ever heard this story? Slapping the water with um, spears and swords, trying to whip the water, the sea, into submission. <laughs> this gives you some insight into the genius of Xerxes. He says he thinks he's a god. And so because this land bridge isn't working, this boat bridge isn't working to cross over into Greece, he's defeated, he's thwarted. And this campaign has lasted for three years. And so Xerxes is coming home broken. Chapter 2, verse 1, that is these things. He comes back to Susa, the citadel, and after these things... King Ahasuerus, his anger has abated. Then he's remembering Vashti, his queen, and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. She was banished, never to see the king's face again. Verse 2, so the king's young men who attended him said, Why don't you let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king? And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa, the capital, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. And let their cosmetics be given them. And let the women, the young woman who pleases the king, be queen instead of Vashti. And this pleased the king, and so he did so. Verses 5 through 11 uh, introduces us to Mordecai and Esther. And I want you to notice some of the things in their life, uh, their existence, their reality. Now, there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite. File that. We're going to talk about him being a Benjaminite in a few weeks. Verse 6, he had been carried away, taken from Jerusalem among the captives carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. And when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa, the citadel, in custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace. She was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor. And he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and with her portion of food and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations for the women since this was the regular period of their beautifying 6 months with oil and myrrh and 6 months with spices and ointments for women when the young women went into the king in this way she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace 
In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of Shazgaz, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. And so when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all of his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Verse 19, now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she, had, when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting in the king's gate, Bigtham and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on a king of Hasuerus. That's Bible speak for they were trying to assassinate the king. Verse 22, and this came to the knowledge of Mordecai and he told it to Queen Esther and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. And when this affair had been investigated and was found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Esther chapter two. What an incredible story. As we mentioned, it could have been uh, made into a movie. It probably has been. It could be made into a book. It probably has been. It's the plot line that keeps our attention. But there are a few things that we can benefit, that we can learn from this chapter as people of God, as people who understand Him. I mentioned the brokenness, the struggle, the pain that Esther and Mordecai went through. That's one of the things I wanted you to see in this chapter. The second thing I wanted you to see is that by the end of the chapter, these broken people have been elevated, right? right? Mordecai discovers a plot, and so he's been elevated in some way. He saves the king's life. Esther, this humble, attractive girl, she's been elevated to queen, and despite their brokenness, despite the pain in their life, despite the struggles in their life, which I, I hope that you notice, despite all those things, God used them mightily. We know the end of the story. They save all the Jews in the kingdom of Persia. God uses them incredibly, these broken people. What did you notice about Esther and Mordecai? Well, you probably noticed that they were taken, they were carried away, they were captives. They were violently, forcefully taken into a land not their own. 
They had been carried away from Jerusalem into a foreign land by Babylon, by Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, You think about Mordecai is bringing up Hadassah, Esther, his cousin. Think about Esther. She doesn't have a mother. She doesn't have a father. She's being raised by her cousin, not a grandmother, not a grandfather, not a sibling, no one else. I don't know about you, but I, I don't want to be raised by any of my cousins. <laughs> I mean, can you think about your cousins? I mean, no offense if your cousins are in the room. Man, my, my cousins were bad influences. They were, they struggled, right? I struggled when I was with my cousins. I can't imagine the level of desperation needed when I had to, if I had to say, you're now my parent, right? I'm going to be raised by you, my cousin. From all indications, all that they had was the older cousin Mordecai and his young, beautiful cousin Esther. That's all they had. No parents. No relatives. This is it. That's all they have. In many ways, people have this idea that Mordecai chose for Esther to be in the king's harem. That he used her beauty as an opportunity to sort of get up. That's that's the way... This story is typically presented, but the language doesn't say that. The language says that they were both taken. They were carried away. The same word is used over and over again. When Esther was discovered, she was taken. You probably remember a famous movie a few years ago with Liam Neeson, right? And he's, his daughter gets taken and he said, I have a certain set of abilities, right? I have a certain set of skills, And I'm going to find you, right? I'm going to come and get you, is what he says. And he travels the world to go and find his daughter. These people are taken. They are stolen. They're kidnapped to be a part of this sort of wicked harem. These are broken people. These are broken people. So two things stick out in this chapter. They're broken, and then God uses them in incredible ways. Let's let's wrap our minds around this in the remainder of our time together. What does it mean to be broken? What does it mean to be vulnerable, to be weak, to be wounded in such a way that that this appeals to God, that he would choose to elevate you, that he would choose to use you? What is it? Maybe helpful to understand brokenness in terms of what it's not. Okay, Brokenness is not, it's not your appetite for sin. It's not the fact that we have this desire within us to rebel against God. It's not wickedness. It's not a free reign on sinful living. It's not that. Uh, It results, that's what results in brokenness. How we can describe it, how we can understand it, is that it's a sense of woundedness. It's a sense of scar, pain, your past mistakes, skeletons in your closet. It is that thing that you feel like makes you inadequate. It is a pride-wrecking experience that leads to surrender. 
If I had to define it, and I've been struggling with words, rearranging them all week long, trying to figure out how to encapsulate this idea of brokenness, how to understand this sense of biblical brokenness. And I think I can land here this morning, even if I change it next week, uh, some of these words. The best I can come up with is that it's any experience in this fallen world that thrusts you into sincerely seeking God for help and salvation. It's any broken experience in your life, any pain in your life, any wound in your life, any sin in your life, any, any sense of brokenness in your own life that thrusts you to this point of desperation where you say, I need God. I need God. Can you think of an experience like that in your life that exposed you that opened you up, that made you vulnerable, that made you weak, that made you come to a point of realization where you said, I I need him. I can't do this without him. Maybe you were abused by a husband. Maybe you were abused by a father, by an uncle, by a grandparent. Maybe you're the abuser. Maybe you are violent, angry, filled with rage, a need to control. Maybe you are the instrument of breaking for other people. Maybe you're the recipient of those wounds. Maybe in some way something has happened to you by no fault of your own that has significantly wounded you, hurt you, Caused you great pain. Like Esther, she was taken captive. Like Mordecai, he was stolen, kidnapped. Whatever that experience is, you arrive at the conclusion in the midst of that brokenness that I need God. I need help. I need healing. I need mercy. I need grace. I need restoration. I need Him. You don't need religion. You don't need a to-do list. You don't need moral tinkering to make your life a little bit better. But you're thrust into a position where you realize, I'm desperate for God. And if He doesn't help me, there's no hope for me. That is brokenness. And it's easy to see how that happens. It's easy. We live in this broken, sin-distorted world. Who in this room hasn't experienced some level of pain, of betrayal, of someone that you thought loved you, stabs you in the back, or betrays you, or frustrates you, or hurts you, or doesn't provide for you, or doesn't love you, or doesn't spend enough time for you, or doesn't provide for you, or, or maybe in some way you've experienced that brokenness in your own ways, through your own mistakes, through your own sinful appetites, through your own rebelliousness, through your own wanderings, and it brings you to this point of realization that we live in this broken, sin-distorted world, filled with pain and struggle and misery. Who here hasn't experienced that? And we all have to some degree. A bigger question, and probably a more relevant question, is why? why? Why is it that we're allowed to experience that? And the problem of evil is no small problem. People have been struggling with this forever. If there's a good God, why is there, why is there evil, right? Why is there evil in the world? 
It's too big of a problem for us to deal with today, but I want to narrow our focus on what does this tell you about God? What do you understand about God? And what I want you to see is our conclusion of the chapter that I mentioned at the beginning is that God is particularly drawn to broken people. He delights in showing mercy and grace and healing and mercy and uh, forgiveness and using for his purposes broken people. And we feel like we have something to offer God. I've told this story so many times, but the Lord reminds me of it. When Julie and I first met, we were getting to know each other uh, in 1997. We were having this lunch with her family and with everyone. And we were just sitting around at this Mexican restaurant in Oklahoma City, just getting to know each other. And, um, and I don't know how we were talking about in the elementary school or kindergarten or something. And I mentioned that I was a very special child. I said, my kindergarten teacher chose me. She moved my desk right up next to hers. I was her special helper. Uh, and she had, she recognized in me something unique and valuable that she put me right next to her. And as I was saying something like that, Julie said, that's what they told us to do to all the worst kids, right? They said to bring the, the kids who are troublemakers. No offense, kid. If your desk is next to your teacher, you are special. But, but this is a technique that they taught them in like elementary education. If you have a rambunctious, rowdy kid, stick him right next to you and give him a purpose. Give him a, a goal. Give him a reason, you know, and put him, elevate him into responsibility. And my little balloon was sort of burst and my deflated ego, you know, all of a sudden, Julie's mom, he is special, Julie, he is a a special helper trying to comfort me. And I don't know why, but a few years ago, I hadn't thought about that story in years, and just a few years ago, the Lord reminded me of that story, and it came on the heels of just a a real disappointing season of ministry. It's a real disappointing season of, I thought that the Lord was going to use me in a particular way, and He didn't. I'd hoped, I'd prayed, I'd, I thought I had something unique to offer God in service, that He would take my gifts and my strengths, and that He would elevate them, and that He would use them. And in the midst of processing that line of thinking, the Lord just reminded me of that story. And it was just a gentle, humble reminder that He didn't choose me and move my desk right up next to his because I was special, because I had an ability, because I had gifts that the world couldn't live without. He chose me and moved my desk right up next to his because I was broken, because I was uh, a misfit in some ways. I had problems and difficulties in my childhood and life. God, as an act of love and compassion, is drawn to brokenness. He's drawn to your weakness. He's drawn to your humility. He's drawn to, he longs to extravagantly love the failures in the room. It's not your strengths and your smarts and your abilities that makes God love you. See, a powerless God 
must use powerful and perfect people. And a powerless God has to find the best of us. And he's sort of limited by using the best among us. Right? That's a powerless God. He has to choose the best of us. But a powerful God, an almighty God, a sovereign God, the creator God of the Bible, he demonstrates his power and his goodness and his glory by using what? The weakest among us, doesn't he? Paul wrote to the Corinthians, it's not because of your amazingness that God chose you to use you. He uses the weak to shame the strong. The humble to shame the proud. God uses... It's like if LeBron started his own basketball team and wanted to show the greatness of his ability, he would choose just dudes like me who can't you know, shoot much. And he would just exemplify his incredible, great basketball ability by choosing the worst of us to be on his team. God demonstrates his glory by using incredible Incredibly broken people. Those of us with scars. Those of us with brokenness. Those of us with wounds. He uses them for His glory. You think about the people of the Bible that God has used. Think about Noah. Whom God used to build an ark to save humanity. And this guy didn't have it all together. After the flood. After it all came about. There's this. Terrible incident that happens with him. Plants a vineyard. Drinks a little too much and has this terrible event in his life. Abraham. Broken in the sense that he was promised by God. That his offspring would be a blessing to the world. And he remains childless. He and Sarah. Though the promise of God hinged on a child. You think about Jacob who was a deceiver. Who lies and cheats his way through life. Until he wrestles with God and God breaks his hip, broken for the rest of his life. Think about Joseph and the wound he received. He was sold by his brothers into slavery. You think about Hannah, who was childless and deeply afflicted. You think about Ruth, whose death of her husband, death of her brother-in-law, death of her father-in-law, living in poverty, living in famine conditions, goes to beg on the edge of a field. You think about David, who Samuel says to Jesse, bring all your sons before me so I can choose one the king. And he brings every single one of them and he goes in front of all of them, Samuel, and says, this is not the one, this is not the one, this is not the one. And he finally looks at Jesse and he says, are these all your sons? Well, he says, no, there's one more. What does that tell you about David's relationship with his father? He's got this father wound. The New Testament characters are wonderfully flawed as well. You think about Peter and Thomas, who's known as Doubting Thomas, and the Apostle Paul, all of these things. What can we understand about this? How can we understand how God chooses to use weak and broken people to accomplish his purposes like Esther and Mordecai? A couple of things in closing. If you're particularly broken today, if there's a wound that has been sort of resurfaced, if in some way you realize I need God, I need Him, I I need Him. This is not just something I do on Sundays, 
I'm not just sort of checking a religious box. I'm just, I need him. I need him at night. I need him in the morning. I'm not, I I feel this lack, this vulnerability, this inadequacy in my life. I am desperate for God. Then there's a word of good news for you. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus says, come to me. All who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus delights in coming to the rescue of those who are broken and who know it. He has no time for the proud of heart that stand up and say, I am worthy. I'm good enough. I've got this all together. So if that's your condition today, if you think, I'm not really getting anything out of this sermon, this is really for somebody like them, then this sermon may be more for you than you realize. If you've never reached a point of brokenness, pride-wrecking sense of neediness for God, then Romans 10.10 may not make any sense to you. that, That those who cry out, those who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Jesus takes special delight in people like the the woman who is tormented by all these spirits and this woman who washes Jesus' hair, feet with her hair and uh, cries all over his feet out of just gratitude for the restoration that Jesus brings. If that's you today, if you feel this brokenness, I want you to know that Jesus' invitation is to come to him. If you're weary, if you're broken, if you're burdened, He promises rest for your souls. For others, the second point of application for you in light of this might be a warning that pride comes before the fall and humility before honor. So if there's a pride in you that just says, I don't need God, the greatest indicator of that pride is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness Daniel Henderson wrote, is your declaration of independence from God. If you find yourself rarely praying, then you have no dependence on God. If you are, if it's been a long time since you've legitimately prayed, that you have not cried out to God, cast your lack upon Him and looked to Him for help, if you are prayerless, it could signal a sense of pride in your life that you feel like you're self-sufficient, that you don't need God. You can handle whatever life throws at you in your own way. You may just be in a managing of sin. You, you feel like you don't need God. And my warning to you is just to humble yourself. There is grace for the humble, but pride comes before the fall. A third application for today is that... Uh, you can walk in sincere faith. Sincere is a funny word. Uh, uh, it's two Latin, uh, I don't know what they are, two Latin things that come together to form one word, sin without, and sere is the word wax. And in the Middle Ages, when this word came about, um, if you went to the market and you wanted to buy a piece of furniture, um, you would ask, is it sincere? <laughs> Have you covered the flaws in this piece of furniture with wax? 
In this past two weeks, I've had a project in our house. We had this big buffet, and we wanted it painted. And there were nicks and dings. It's 30 or 40 years old. Uh, but there was just this one scar on the top of prominent place. And uh, I was recovering it, repainting it. And in the process of that, I needed to fill that scar. And so I got a, a candle, and I lit it, and I dripped wax in there, and I covered it and sanded it and covered it and filled in that huge scar with wax and painted it. And if you walked into my house today, you wouldn't notice that huge scar. That's the opposite of sincere. Sincere is means without wax. It means that you don't have to hide your brokenness. It means that if you have a wound, a heart wound, a struggle, a past regret, a mistake, that you don't have to be ashamed and hide that scar. That God can use and heal and redeem the broken and vulnerable places of your life and use them for His glory. Some of you feel like you've got to cover all that stuff up and somebody, you walk into church and you're buttoned up and you're put together and somebody says, how are you? I'm, I'm fine. And how are you? I'm fine. And, and everything's good in my life and I'm good and you're good. And Sincere faith means you don't have it all together and you don't have to have it all together. It means you can walk in here and say, I'm scarred and I'm wounded and I'm broken and I'm emotionally damaged and I'm, I regret and I just don't have it all together. And Church isn't this sort of tidied up place that perfect people come. It's a place for healing, for broken people to find mercy and grace from a God who says, come to me if you're broken. I can heal you. I can help you. I can... I can use you. There's hope for you. And the longer you play this game of church where you're just all buttoned up and you're not sincere about your wounds and your brokenness and and all those things because it hurts to be vulnerable. It's hard to be sincere, isn't it? This should be the place for sincere faith. And you should be okay to present yourself here and to... Pull trusted, loving friends aside and say, I just don't have it all together. I really struggle. And when you do that, you give God glory. Let me close with this verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul is afflicted. He's afflicted and he's acknowledging his weakness. And because of all that God has done in his life, he's boasting in his weakness. Look at chapter 11, right before chapter 12 there in verse 30. He says, if I have to boast, I'm going to boast of the things that demonstrate my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed forever, he knows that I'm not lying. In verse 12, he says, I must, chapter 12, verse 1, I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. He says, I know a man in Christ Jesus who was caught up to the third heaven, whether in his body or out of the body, I don't know, but God knows. I know that this man who was caught up into paradise, verse 4, he heard these things that can't be told. On behalf of this man, verse 5, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except in my weaknesses. 
Though if I should boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. Verse 7, so to keep me from becoming conceited, to wreck my pride, Paul says, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to torment me, to keep me from conceit. Three times I pleaded with the Lord that is, it should leave me. But he says to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly because of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with my weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, it could be that by filling in the weaknesses of your life with wax and presenting this perfect front, you are keeping God from using you in some way. It could be that your greatest ministry of the future is directly tied to your greatest affliction. That God might want to use you in your weakness and brokenness to bring healing to someone else. And if your pride is so up, that you refuse to acknowledge how broken you are, you may be missing out on the greatest adventure of God using you in your life. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for our time together this morning. We thank you from this message. We thank you for this message from Mordecai and from Esther's life that demonstrate that in their great brokenness, in their great place of affliction you use them for your glory for your majesty you use them to save the Jews in Persia Father we give you thanks for that we thank you that you your word says that a smoldering wick you will not snuff out that you delight in using broken people, contrite people. And so I pray that you would give us a broken, contrite spirit before you today that you will not despise. Would you wreck our pride and allow us to be used for your glory and sincerity of faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.